Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5050 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5050. Enjoy! Donald Trump, the reality television president, went to extravagant lengths this week to spin his failure to contain the coronavirus, a failure so thorough he couldn't even protect his wife, his staff, his press secretary, members of the United States Senate, the military members and Secret Service agents sworn to protect him or even himself from catching it. And so at least 18 people connected to the Trump White House are now infected. Late today, we learned that Stephen Miller, senior advisor to the president, has also tested positive. But what Donald Trump wants you to take from that is the spin that, well, he faced the coronavirus head on and he beat it. So now you should revere him and stop fearing the coronavirus. What Trump does not want you to know is that reality TV, especially the one about his presidency, is fake. Just like The Apprentice was fake. He really wasn't that rich or even sort of successful. All that ridiculous Trump rhetoric, scripted. Those photo ops and visuals, orchestrated. At great risk, by the way, to staffers and to photographers and to other innocent people. Donald Trump is highly contagious with an active infection of COVID-19 that he has been infected for, for we don't even know how many days. And while that's being packaged and produced to create a version of Trump who is capable and healthy and strong, that is fooling no one. Because everyone outside of his sycophants on Earth, too, assumes that Trump is probably sicker than he's letting on. And coronavirus isn't just coursing through the 7.5 million Americans, most of whose names you don't know. And it has killed more than 211,000 Americans, all of whom Trump and his party have ignored since March. It's also surging through Congress and through the White House with a fourth press staffer, in addition to Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, testing positive today, as well as a Trump military valet who came into contact with Trump testing positive over the weekend. And now senior military officials, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, are in quarantine after exposure to COVID-19 and to the infected president. What Trump hoped to hide during his American Mussolini balcony stunt was that he was clearly having trouble breathing just like he wants to hide that he is not in control of the virus or of an election that he is desperate to win. Trump is falling even further behind Joe Biden in battleground states that he needs to win the presidency back. And Trump isn't just desperate. He's clearly afraid. And not just of the virus hurting him, as Vanity Fair's Gabe Sherman reported this weekend. No, he's 
afraid of you. He's afraid of voters. Early voting is shattering records this election season, fueled by a big mail-in ballot lead for Democrats. More than 4.2 million people have already voted in this presidential election. They're coming out in droves. Just look at this line outside of an Ohio Board of Elections today. Wow. While in Virginia, 700,000 people have voted early, with an additional 700,000 already voting in Florida, with nearly 400,000 of them being Democrats. Trump knows he's losing. Look at that line. Full stop. He knows he's losing. But rather than acknowledging the seriousness and the severity of this infection, which would be the only hope for him to turn his campaign and his presidency around, he is embracing his identity as a confirmed super spreader who's putting people and their families at risk. From the Secret Service agents who were forced to drive in a hermetically sealed SUV for his photo op, to his Democratic opponent, who Trump says he still plans to face in person in a town hall debate in nine days. To the White House staff, who are forced to work for a president who says they shouldn't be afraid of coronavirus, despite not having the health care privilege that only a sitting president enjoys. It is insane that he would return to the White House and jeopardize his staff's health, a White House source told Axios, adding, this place is a cesspool. Joining me now is Yamiche Alcindor, White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Dr. Lippy Roy, internal physician, and Michelle Goldberg, opinion writer for The New York Times. Thank you uh, all for being here. Um, Yamisha, I'm actually going to go to you first just to get some reporting on ba- and, and some background here on what we're dealing with. How afraid are White House staffers? And I mean both political staffers and just staffer staffers, the people who work in the White House who are not political. I've been talking to people who work in the White House for the last couple of days, and people are freaking out. There's no way to over to really talk more or, or to really um, exaggerate how scared people are. It's it's complete mayhem. People are worried. They're, t- they're lining up to get tested. They don't know who um, could be exposed. There's no telling when the president last tested negative. The White House is refusing to provide that information. And by the way, there's also this contact tracing. The White House does not want the CDC and other health officials to really weigh in here outside of them. They have this this in-house epidemiologist that's supposed to be contact tracing. But you have people like Chris Christie, who's now hospitalized with the coronavirus, who said he's never even heard from the White House about these coronavirus contact tracing. So what you see here really is a White House that is that has a virus that is coursing through it and a president who is continuing to now falsely say that it's like the flu. And we know that the coronavirus has killed five times the amount of people that the flu has in the last five years. It's killed more than that. So it's really remarkable that the president is continuing to talk about this um, and trying to project strength when there are so many people in the White House who are frankly scared, Joy. Um, and and they sh- and they should be. I mean, Donald Trump has an inf- a highly lethal infectious disease, and he's walking around and pulling his mask off, which we saw him do last night. Uh, as for the contact tracing that Yumi just mentioned, the White House has said no to the CDC, which is the preeminent agency that could do it. Uh, they will not be assisting, allowing them to in- assist with contact tracing. We should note that. Um, Lippy, I, I I reached out to you yesterday. I emailed you yesterday, um, just about watching Donald Trump do his Mussolini movement. 
people started noticing that he appeared to be laboring in his breathing, um, that at one point he put his hand on his diaphragm like he was wincing in pain. He was trying to look like a tough guy, but he looked, quite frankly, like a very sick elderly man with a lot of makeup on. That, that's what he looked like to my eye. Um, and so I want to just direct you just for a moment to a Tim O'Brien tweet. Now, Tim O'Brien is obviously not a doctor, but he just put down a, a timeline that I want love you to comment on. Um, it says here, Herman Cain, he's talking about Herman Cain, a, a Trump ally to the end of his life. He got sick on 624. Uh, he attended a Trump rally with no mask. We don't know if that's where he got it. We should note that. He tested positive on the 2nd of July. Uh, by the 30th of July, he was dead. And in between the 2nd and the 30th, he kept saying he was feeling better. I'm sure at some point, maybe his doctor, I don't know, sent him home, thought he was fine, but he ended up dying. Um, Donald Trump uh, tweeted out and said people should not be afraid, made a video saying people should not be afraid of the coronavirus. That tweet was considered so egregious that even Facebook and Twitter took down his statement because it is false. And they even reacted. And Facebook is usually pretty liberal about letting him say whatever he wants. How much danger is Donald Trump in? A few days, we don't know how many days into his coronavirus prognosis and how much danger are his staff in? Yeah. So when he was standing, oh, great to see you, by the way, Joy, when he was standing on top of uh, wherever that was, um, uh, you know, I've looked at that video many, many times. And I think when people think of shortness of breath, they think of somebody who's huffing and puffing. Right. And. You don't see that with the president, but what you can see is he's using what we call the accessory muscles, right? He's that it's labored breathing. He's using these muscles to breathe. For people like you and I who are not having trouble breathing or do not have dyspnea, shortness of breath, we don't need to use those muscles, but he's clearly using those. And there's a point that you made, Joy, yesterday on your show, which I, I, I didn't even realize. He had somebody else probably apply that makeup. So somebody else had to get close enough to him. Um, you know, to, to your point, Joy, Joy, um, you know, the president said, said something to the fact of, you know, something to the effect of, uh, look at me, I'm, I'm over it now, I'm better. So just to point out, he received, he had access to some of the most world-class, state-of-the-art experimental medications, uh, hospitals, uh, specialists, doctors, his own personal transportation, security, all of this is to encapsulate one word, and that is privilege. That is something that the seven, nearly 7.5 million infected patients, people in this country right now, do not have. It's something that the 210,000 people and counting who have died, including Mr. Herman Cain, did not have. It's not something, you know, it, it's, it's lack of access that most people in this country don't have access to just good old fashioned health care. Um, and, and we already know, Joy, that 80, over 80 percent of the people who've died have been elderly. We know that black, brown, Native American, Hispanic people are disproportionately affected. Um, what's the president going to do in terms of reassuring them? What I would have wanted to hear as a doctor and a public yeah. health advocate who believes in science and data is wear this. This is what's going to save your life and keep that physical distancing. Those two things will save your life, Joy. 
And, and, and how much danger does Donald, is Donald Trump, since he is an actively infected person who is still contagious, how much of a physical threat does he pose to the people who work in the White House? Yeah, I'll answer. I, let me answer something else I didn't get to, was that he, so the next coming days, Joy, he's far, far from being out of the woods. So he got dexamethasone, a steroid, which is going to make anyone feel better in the short term. In the long term, in the next few days, I should say, who knows what's going to happen? This is why he needs to be close monitored. And yeah, he, of course he's actively infectious. He's in the most infectious period right now. He should be in isolation, which means none of these photo op nonsense gigs, um, in isolation, far away from people, masked and, and good hand hygiene. Uh, that's what needs to happen, Joy. Yeah. Um, and Michelle, let me bring you into this. Um, this is what Joe Biden gave a speech today. That was actually pretty presidential, I have to say. It was quite, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of equanimity toward Donald Trump and others. But here he was talking about the virus itself. This pandemic is not a red state or blue state issue. This virus doesn't care whether you live or where you live, what political party you belong to. And affects us all. It will take anyone's life. It's a virus. It's not a... She's Joe Biden's choice to be next in line. But who is Kamala Harris? Join me, Joy Reid, as I explore her life's journey from Oakland to Washington, peeking behind the curtain with some of the people who know her best, from her current Senate colleagues to her sorority sisters to campaign managers from her earliest days in politics. Hear the highs, the lows, the intimate details of Kamala's road to vice presidential nominee. From MSNBC and Wondery, Kamala, next in line. New episodes every Monday. Subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. On Friday, October 16th, how one man saw the presidency will change how you see the world. Focus Features and MSNBC Films present The Way I See It, based on the New York Times number one bestseller. From the producer of the Academy Award-winning Free Solo and director Don Porter, this new documentary offers an unprecedented look behind the scenes at two of the most iconic presidents in American history, Barack Obama and Ronald Reagan, as seen through the eyes of renowned official White House photographer, Pete Souza. Souza was eyewitness to what it means to be the most powerful person on earth, an experience that transformed him from a photojournalist to a searing commentator and activist on the issues we face as a country today. The Way I See It is your behind-the-scenes all-access pass to the highest office in the land through the lens of a man who captured it all. Watch the television premiere of The Way I See It, commercial-free, Friday, October 16th at 10 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Political weapon. And, and, you know, Michelle, um, he also made a statement over Twitter, which I think is true. He said, make no mistake, if you're out of work, if your business is closed, if your child's school is shut down, if you're seeing layoffs in your community, Donald Trump decided today that none of that, none of it matters to him because he needs to rip off his mask and do videos. Let me contrast that with what Mike Pence, who is the head, I should remind everyone, of the coronavirus task force in the White House. He mocked Senator Kamala Harris for wanting to have a screen between herself and him. And he's been around the infectious president. He said if Senator Harris wants to have a fortress around herself, have at it, as if he's, you know, sort of that's his little macho statement. Um, the politics around this seem pretty clear. And it, they seem pretty clearly horrible for Donald Trump, who's already losing an election. Can you make any sense of them digging deeper into this strategy of just ignoring the coronavirus? Well, I don't know that it's a strategy for Donald Trump so much as a psychological orientation that he can't break out of, right? I mean, Donald Trump could have 
if he was a completely different person, said, my experience battling this terrible disease has shown me, you know, something about what the country is going through and given me empathy for the seven and a half million people in this country who've had to fight it. But if he was capable of doing that, he wouldn't be the person that he is, right? This is a person whose narcissism, whose narcissism even gets in the way of self-interest, right? Who needs above all to be seen as strong and invulnerable and whose whose approach to this disease all along has been this has been you know kind of the propaganda of the deed right to basically they were going to say that the disease is totally under control and not that dangerous and then to animate that lie they were going to act like it they were going to demand that all the people around them act like it even at the cost of putting their own lives in danger um, and, you know, it's interesting that that quote about, you know, sort of mocking Kamala Harris's demand for greater safety at the debate that comes, of course, from Katie Miller, who is married to Stephen Miller, who just tested positive today after testing negative for several days. So the idea that Mike Pence is out of the woods because he has tested negative so far or that Kamala Harris is safe being on a stage with him with no barrier is, you know, it's kind of completely disproven by the situation of her own husband. Yeah. And you mean, you know, the, the press corps obviously has been put at great risk. You've been out there as well. Kaylee McEnany has refused to put a mask on. She also plays the role. You know, I, I wonder if. If you if the media at some point, if the White House Correspondents Association is going to say we don't want anyone near this guy, we don't want anyone going back. I think it's a tough position to be in, because if you become a journalist, and I'm sure, Joey, you understand this, you have this mission. And as White House correspondent, it's you have this mission to represent the American people, to press for so many answers, because this is an administration that needs to be held accountable. And they need to be held accountable at times in person, because that's when you can get them on camera, on the record to answer these tough questions, including why aren't you doing more to help Americans? Um, as the Federal Reserve chairman says, that if you don't help and if Congress doesn't do something, then we're going to get even further into this, and there's not going to be an economic recovery to speak of. But I think there are a lot of reporters, myself included, who are constantly balancing putting our own families at risk with going to report at the White House. So I think myself and my colleagues, I, I know for me, when I go there, I make sure that I'm, that I'm masked, that I'm socially distancing, that now I'm, I'm really staying outside. But there are a lot of people who are clearly being put at risk from this. And there are a lot of people who are very angry, frankly. I mean, I can't even imagine, apart from journalists, there are the people who are cleaning the White House. There are the people who are feeding the president food. Yeah. There are the people who are cleaning the bathrooms. So there's a whole host of people that we don't see apart from journalists that are exposed to this. Do you do you know whether or not inside the White House people who because Donald Trump doesn't like seeing people in masks are the people who clean the, the White House and the people who serve him food, as you just mentioned, the butlers, are they allowed to wear masks? Do you know? So White House in a statement today said anyone that was going to be around President Trump is going to be wearing a mask. So that's what they're telling us. But of course, what's complicating that is this is a White House with a really big credibility issue. And we know that President Trump, being contagious, took off his own mask. He had a White House photographer within feet of him taking photos of him. That person, of course, was at risk. So even though they're saying that they're that they're yeah. everyone around the president is going to be masked, who knows if that's actually true? And Michelle, last last uh, quote to you. It, it sounds like the Trump 
campaign has been over, but they're not doing a campaign anymore. For whatever reason, you know, the Matt Getzes of the world are worshiping Donald Trump in this weird way that it is at this point just a cult of personality. And I wonder how you run against that, because that isn't a camp that it isn't even a campaign anymore. Well, first of all, I mean, I still think that, you know, as much as it looks like they're in a tailspin and you see Donald Trump, you know, sort of salting the ground as he retreats by refusing to pass this desperately needed COVID stimulus and saying that it's not on the table until after the election. Um, Right. I mean, it's hard to think of a worse closing message besides um, you know, coronavirus <laughs> will make you feel like you <laughs> will make you feel will take 20 years, you know, will make you feel <laughs> like you were 20 years younger. Um, but at the same time, you know, I don't think anybody should be complacent. I think that as bad as the polls are for them, people should, you know, run as if Democrats have to run as if they're behind. They have to remember the lesson of 2016, even though 2020 is not an exact parallel. And it seems like Joe Biden has done a really good job of sort of staying out of the way when your opponent seems to be imploding. Yeah. And stay away from Donald Trump. Stay as far away from him as possible. Um, (laughs) Run through the tape, though. That's what they always used to tell me in track. Track goes usually run through the tape. Uh, Yamiche Alcindor, Dr. Lippy Roy, Michelle Goldberg, thank you all. Please stay safe. And up next on the readout, Trump says, don't be afraid. Thank you. Uh, Don't be afraid. Don't let COVID dominate your life. That's what he says. Well, tell that to the millions of Americans who've lost their jobs or the nearly 211,000 families who have lost loved ones. Two of those family members join me next. Plus, why is Mike Pence in Utah? We have a seriously ill, infected and contagious, heavily medicated president haunting the halls of the White House. Shouldn't Pence be in Washington running the government? And Michelle Obama's closing argument for electing Joe Biden. Let's be honest. Right now, our country is in chaos because of a president who isn't up to the job. The readout continues after this. Trump has downplayed the virus from the very beginning, despite the reality on the ground. It's a very contagious virus. It's uh, incredible, but it's something that we have uh, tremendous control of. It's a mass casualty incident that just won't stop. The country wants to get back to work. Our country was built to get back to work. I'm without a job, like since March. You're saying it right now, hey, go back to work. What work? There's no jobs out there yet. We have met the moment. And we have prevailed. We've done an incredible job. People are getting laid off. People have losing their apartments. People are out here dying. The doctors are tired. The nurses are tired. We're all tired of this. Nobody wants to keep doing it, but we're not done yet. Don't let it dominate your lives. Let it dominate your life? No one's letting it. Nick didn't let it. It wasn't a choice. And it dominated his life. It dominated my life. It dominated our family's lives um, for... 95 days, and, be, and because he didn't make it, it will ever affect my life. Wow. I'm joined now by Long Beach, California Mayor Robert Garcia, who lost his mother and stepfather to coronavirus, and Giovanna Queiroga, who lost her mom to the virus. Thank you both for being here. Um, you guys are stronger than me uh, to be able to come on and talk about this, so I really, truly appreciate you. Mr. Mayor, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, Mayor Garcia, um, 
Donald Trump says, don't worry about it. Don't let COVID dominate your life. He says he feels better than he's felt in 20 years. He is 73 years old. Um, he is now one of the 7.5 million people who have coronavirus. Um, he's lucky because 211,000 people have died. What do you say back to him when he says it's all good? Well, I think his response, especially the last few days, have been just totally shameful, uh, completely beneath uh, any president of the United States. Um, he is really treating this virus um, like it's nothing and somehow um, has put no value on the people that have died, including uh, my two parents. Um, he is acting like somehow he is a warrior. You know, his family is calling him a warrior. Um, the people that died have just as much value as he does or anybody else uh, in this country. And the irresponsibility that he has shown uh, putting others at risk at his contagion level, uh, it was really, really hard to see. It's been very hard to see. He had an opportunity to make an example. He had an opportunity to show some leadership after being uh, getting the virus. And instead, he's done the exact opposite. He's actually made things worse uh, and he's actually making it more dangerous in this country every single day. Yeah. And your mom, Gabby Elena O'Donnell, uh, was a medical assistant um, from Peru. So, you know, she's one of those people who we need uh, to be solving this crisis. Can you just talk a little bit in there? We're seeing a picture of your, your beautiful mom. Um, you know, healthcare professionals are not even immune from this. Healthcare professionals have also um, died, been sickened. So this is a time when it should be all hands on deck. As a mayor, as somebody who's responsible um, for a city in this country, what are you doing uh, different than this? How, how are you communicating with your city as to what they should be doing to protect themselves? Well, first and foremost, I've grown up around uh, clinics and hospitals my whole life. And my mom was a healthcare worker up until when she passed away um, just recently. And um, what healthcare workers and doctors and nurses will tell you is that this is a very serious virus. And that people that, that contract COVID-19 need to stay quarantined or need to stay in the hospital. So by Donald Trump going around, taking joy rides, going back to, to the White House, taking his mask off, he is a, a serious threat uh, to public health. What we're trying to do as mayors across yeah. the country is tell people to stay safe. Donald Trump makes it harder every single day for us to keep people safe locally and to encourage people to put on masks. Yeah. Let me let me bring you in, Giovanna. Um, your mom um, was a name whose name is Olga Kiroga, uh, was a Chicago public schools teacher, somebody, another person who was incredibly essential um, to our society, um, doing the, the great work of teaching. Um, she passed uh, just weeks after going back to school. Um, You've also taught at Chicago Public Schools, uh, you, uh, you know, uh, or no, Olga, your mom had taught there for two decades. She, she was a teacher. Um, do you feel that our public schools would have been safer and that students and teachers and administrators would have been safer, your mom would have been safer, had the president done something different? And what would that something in your mind have been, if so? Absolutely. Um as we can see, he's making light of the situation. You know, not only did my mother um, get COVID, she went to work and then she came home and she gave it to my father, myself and my younger sister. Now, if the schools would have been safe, if they would have been sanitized, if they had the proper equipment, if they had the appropriate amount of staff, that wouldn't happen. I would still have my mother, but I no longer have that. If you know, CPS had the funding and everything to provide the proper things, then we wouldn't be in this situation. 
Yeah. Uh, we know that in Illinois, there have been 307,000, nearly 308,000 cases. There have been 9,085 uh, deaths in your state, including your mom. Uh, unemployment has soared to 11 percent. In Chicago, uh, nearly 3,000 people have died. That's more than in 9-11. Um, and, and, and Giovanna, if you could get Donald Trump or his team to listen to you, um, what would you want to say to them? Or Mike Pence. Mike Pence is, de is debating tomorrow. He's the head of the coronavirus task force. He made fun of Senator Kamala Harris for wanting to be screened off from him. If you could get them to listen to you, Giovanna, what would you want to tell them? Stop making light of it. It's very real. It's tearing families apart. It's, it's not something to just be like, oh, yeah, I have it. I feel better now. No, you know, there's things that need to be done to prevent the spread, you know, and quarantining yourself is one of them. Well, that's what we did. We were in our home for two weeks until we tested back negative, you know. Again, wear your mask, wash your hands, practice social distancing. They need to enforce this and realize that that's the only way to start everyone more safe and less at risk. Mayor Robert Garcia, Giovanna Quiroga, uh, this country would have been far better off with either of you uh, leading it um, over the last year. I'm so sorry for your losses, truly. And thank you so much um, for coming and speaking with us this evening. Thank you, Josh. And have a good thank weekend. You. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Uh, and meanwhile, as we head into the first vice presidential debate, and that's tomorrow night, shouldn't Mike Pence be minding the store? while Trump recovers from the virus that he swore would just disappear. And as we just heard from these two guests, it didn't. Don't go anywhere. The readout is back after this. Donald Trump's doctor stated yesterday that he is not out of the woods yet. In fact, the days ahead could be the most critical to his recovery. And yet, even before Trump went home from Walter Reed Medical Center yesterday, Mike Pence was boarding a plane for Utah, site of tomorrow's vice presidential debate. As Trump continues his regimen of medications, including drugs that by all accounts could have impaired his mental activities even further, it's now, isn't, isn't now the time for Pence not only to be at the White House, but to be preparing in case he needs to take over the duties of the presidency. Former acting Solicitor General Neil Katyal, who has been critical of many of Trump's past decisions, writes, this one eclipses them all in its selflessness and poor judgment. There should be no doubt about the capacity of the man who holds the nuclear launch codes, yet that doubt is unavoidable right now. Neil Katyal joins me now. Neil, uh, I'm so glad that you could be here tonight. The, the, the sort of normal thing that presidential administrations do is they think about what to do if the president is incapacitated and they implement a very simple plan. Recent presidents who've had to transfer power to their vice president include Ronald Reagan, who had to transfer it to Vice President George H.W. Bush. He was, of course, shot. Uh, he had abdominal, and once he had abdominal surgery, he had to get, make a transfer as well. Um, 2007, President George W. Bush did the same kind of transfer to Dick Cheney, and this is when he underwent a colonoscopy, just a colonoscopy. He did the transfer. We were thinking earlier of, you know, there are even catastrophic cases, God forbid, you know, people think they're fine. William Henry Harrison thought he was fine. He went and did his inaugural speech without an overcoat. 32 days later, he had passed away. There was a plan, right? In this case, there seems to be no plan. 
Mike Pence is just zipping off and going to do a debate. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this isn't this isn't laughing. This is as serious as it gets. And my co-author, jo Josh Geltzer, and I wrote this because of the issues of governance here. It goes to our national security, goes to so much more. And look, it's no secret that we're dealing with a president who's not exactly a paragon of emotional stability. <laughs> but I want to put that to one side and just say that the question here is really, you know, do we have a president that's really functioning at 100 percent? And there are three issues. First, the steroids he's on. That leads to aggressiveness mm. and emotional mood swings in approximately a third of the cases. Uh, one Stanford law professor today said that she was on it for a while and she wouldn't trust herself to be the president of her cat, uh, that it just impairs judgment <laughs> and makes people aggressive. The second is the immediate term, the oxygen deprivation, um, particularly for him during sleep. The dean of the UCSF Medical School today had warnings about this and about the poor judgment that could ensue. And then last, in the longer term, COVID itself has been shown to cause cognitive impairment in perhaps about a third of patients. And so all three of these issues mean that we don't have a president who looks like he's going to function at 100 percent at a time when so many catastrophic things can go wrong in the world. And, you know, if. For instance, and, you know, nobody wishes anything, you know, to happen poorly to, you know, to, to Donald Trump. You know, he, you know, everybody's like, good. He, he's back at the White House. He's, you know, maybe roided out, but he says he's feeling fine. But what if something were to happen to him while he's in the White House and Mike Pence is in a whole other state? We've also learned right. that Chuck Grassley has said, oh, you know, his doctors say he doesn't have to get tested. He's also in the line of succession. Shouldn't everyone in the line of succession right now be on quarantine God forbid something happened to Trump. I think everyone's got to be taking precautions. And Joy, you're absolutely right. Nobody wishes ill of, to happen to, to these folks. I mean, I personally want President Trump to get better tomorrow, to beat him at the polls in November, and then to see him serve his sentences that I think he'll invariably face in state and federal here, courts. Here, here. <laughs> uh, but, but, you and a lot but, of people, you know, my friend. <laughs> Uh, but I think right now, you know, there is a real issue of governance here because presidents have to react to all sorts of emergency situations, particularly during COVID. They could be, you know, border closings, medical, economic issues. I mean, just take today when President Trump, as you were saying before, killed the corona stimulus bill. I mean, even for him, by his standards of judgment, this is a weird decision. I mean, he normally slavishly worships the stock market. And here he is just all of a sudden, you know, rashly crashing it. And, um, you know, and it's quite erratic. And, you know, foreign actors might take advantage of his weakness to do all sorts of stuff. We know Russia is interfering in the election already. Will they be emboldened by this? And most worrisome at all of all, he's the one guy who has the nuclear codes. And the idea that someone with the erraticism of, you know, someone on steroids has that is, I think, incredibly dangerous. And so mm. I think he should do what every responsible president in the past has done, as you were saying, people like Reagan and Bush, which is temporarily uh, give that power over instead of leading, instead of just yeah. waiting for a catastrophe to occur. One wonders why he isn't. Maybe it's ego. Um, let's talk about Mike Pence himself. Uh, Mike Pence, through his spokeswoman, who happens to be Katie Miller, the wife of Stephen Miller, who has now tested positive for coronavirus. She reportedly at this time has not tested uh, positive herself. But he through Ms. Miller, he mocked Senator Harris, saying if she wants to have a fortress around herself, I have at it. Nah. Um, 
He does not want to have a plexiglass divider on his side of the stage, according to a White House official. Pence's team understands Kamala Harris uh, may have requested that for herself, but he feels it's excessive. He has been in the company of and in proximity to not just Trump, but other people who are known to be infected, including at that pep rally at the White House. Maybe Pence's judgment isn't any better than Trump's, huh? It looks that way. I mean, fool me once. I mean, you had President Trump last week going to the debate when he may have actively had coronavirus. He could have exposed Joe Biden to it. Uh, and, you know, if I were in Biden's shoes, I'd be scared out of my mind to go to another debate with this guy who seems to have no regard for this. And now to have the vice president sharing on that, sharing that view. And, you know, like, I don't know what kind of false machismo these people have by saying, oh, I don't have to stand with plexiglass or I don't have to wear a mask. I don't know what kind of like, you know, strength that projects, but maybe in their own mind, that's what they got to work with. So they use it. Um, but uh, to me, it's, you know, selfish. It's irresponsible. It's beyond unpresidential. It's not human. It's not the way we expect anyone in this country to behave. I don't care if you're the president or, you know, you know, some, you know, someone who's uh, just, you know, an ordinary worker, whatever. It doesn't matter. You, you know, there are certain standards of behavior yeah. that are current a pandemic. And this president and now this vice president are actively defying them, which is dangerous to the people around them and dangerous to the American people because some of them take cues from this nonsense behavior. And I will just note for, for, for you, Neil, for our audience, that Joe Biden has said just uh, not long ago that he does not believe the debates should go forward if, in fact, Donald Trump is still uh, infected with COVID, which he presumably would be because it would only be a couple of weeks later. We also have the Associated Press having spoken um, with some um, Secret Service agents uh, who are angry uh, and concerned about the cavalier attitude of the White House um, and, think, and feeling that it's only good luck that's kept them from getting sick. And we actually aren't sure. We were debating today whether one of the people who travels with the nuclear football might also be at risk or have been infected. That's what we're down to, is trying to guess whether whoever's holding it at the moment has it. Uh, but that is Joe Biden's thoughts. Uh, so we will leave it there. Uh, Neil Katyal, always great to speak with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And still ahead. Thank you. And still ahead, former presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke joins me on the Republicans' latest efforts to make it harder to vote in Texas, because, of course, stay with us. Right now, our country is in chaos because of a president who isn't up to the job. And his willful mismanagement of the COVID crisis is just one example of his negligence. They're stoking fears about black and brown Americans, lying about how minorities will destroy the suburbs. We can no longer pretend that we don't know exactly who and what this president stands for. Search your hearts and your conscience, and then vote for Joe Biden like your lives depend on it. Michelle Obama with a powerful closing message, and it all comes down to voting. We are now just 28 days from the official election day, but voting is already underway across the country. And new polls show a disaster brewing for Donald Trump. CNN's poll shows him trailing Joe Biden by 16 points. It follows an NBC News Wall Street Journal poll from over the weekend showing Biden with a 14-point lead. And another poll today in Battleground, Pennsylvania, shows Biden leading by 12. 
in Ohio, in-person early voting kicked off to long, long lines today, echoing scenes in South Carolina on Monday. According to the U.S. Elections Project, well over four million Americans have already voted. Florida is seeing a surge in mail-in ballots, 372,000 by Democrats, 197,000 from Republicans. But all that enthusiasm also comes with warning signs about access to voting. In Pennsylvania, the website for registering to vote and applying for mail-in ballots crashed over the weekend for more than 40 hours. It is now back up and running. So do use it. Surprise, surprise. The same thing happened in Florida. The voter registration deadline was extended until 7 p.m. tonight as a result. And given all of those signs of enthusiasm, Republicans are stepping up their efforts to make voting harder. Yesterday, on the same day early voting began in South Carolina, the United States Supreme Court sided with Republicans, upholding a state law requiring witness signatures for absentee ballots. And you won't believe what Republicans are doing in Texas. They're already at it. Beto O'Rourke joins me after the break to discuss. Last week, the Republican... Hey guys, Willie Geist here. This week on the Sunday Sit-Down Podcast, I get together with Ina Garten for a virtual catch-up about her latest cookbook, filming her show while at home the last few months, and a Zoom cocktail party with Ina. Get our conversation now for free wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Tremaine Lee, host of Into America, a podcast from MSNBC. Join me as we go into the roots of inequality. It's an economic injustice and a racial injustice. And then when you add health, it's a health injustice. Into what's at stake. People are going to be voting not for a person, but for stability. And into what comes next. Into America, a podcast about who we are as Americans and who we want to become. New episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Subscribe now. Governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, ordered counties across the state to provide just one drop-off location for voters to cast their absentee ballots. The decision would disproportionately target counties like Travis and Harris counties, which are larger and more diverse. Surprise, surprise. The governor's move came on the same day that Travis County, home to the state capital, Austin, had just opened four drop-off locations. It also comes weeks after the state shattered voter registration records, adding 1.5 million new voters. On Monday, a third lawsuit was filed to overturn the governor's order. But I guess none of this should come as a surprise from a party that revels in making voting as difficult as possible. I'm joined now by former congressman and former Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke. Uh, so here we are again. Um, uh, Beto, it's great talking with you as usual. They're not even being subtle this time. It's, it's, it's pretty clear to anyone who's paying attention that those 1.5 million new voters are scaring the hell out of the Republican Party. Is there anything that Democrats can do to beat them back? Absolutely. I, I think this, Joy, is a, is a sign of desperation and an indication of how close these races for the state house, for Congress, for U.S. Senate, and then also for those 38 electoral college votes It'll come in on the night of November 3rd and could end this national nightmare if Biden becomes the first Democrat to win Texas since 1976. They're, they're throwing out all the stops. But you look at Harris County, which, which you cited, which is one of the most diverse counties in America. The, uh, the elections administrator there has opened up 24-hour voting, ballot tracking for those mail-in ballots, drive-up 
voting and voter voting super centers. So you mentioned the 1.5 million new registrations since the last presidential election, the extraordinary turnout we saw in 2018. The electorate, especially Democrats, are excited to vote. And we've got wonderful candidates up and down the ballot to vote for. We will overcome this voter suppression. And let, let, let me let you play pundit for me for a second. You know your state very well, obviously. Uh, you ran and, and, and damn near uh, beat Ted Cruz. Uh, I think a lot of people still don't understand who, who it is that, that liked Ted Cruz enough to vote for him, but there it is. Um, the way the race looks right now is that Biden, if you just average it out, is up by somewhere between, I mean, he's down by somewhere between three and five percentage points. Um, we're going to put up a bunch of the polls here um, just to show you Siena, Quinnipiac, et cetera. So it's between three and you know five down. So it's close, but Trump is still consistently ahead in the polls. And in the Senate race, it's not as close. Uh, MJ Hager is pretty far behind John Cornyn um, in this race, at least as of right now. How much can that change? Can Hager and Biden close that gap, um, which you, you came real close to doing when you ran for Senate? Can, it, can that gap be closed in the short amount of time we have left? It, it can. And in part because Texas is so voter suppressed, it has become very hard to count Democratic voters. So in 2018, most polls on the eve of the election had me down by eight or nine points to Ted Cruz. I ended up losing by two mm. and a half. Uh, most polls had Hillary Clinton losing by double digits in Texas. She lost by nine points. Um, there, there's typically an outperformance of the polls by Democrats of three to four points. So I would say those races are much, much closer. MJ Hagar can beat John mm. Cornyn and Joe Biden can can win this state. In fact, on the eve of early voting on, on the 12th of October, we're going to have a million voter phone bank. Our volunteers are going to call a million voters to get them to commit to voting on the first day of early voting. Uh, the Texas Democratic Party, the candidates, everyone's doing their part. I think we can do this, Joy. And I think I think we can end this on the third, you know, Pennsylvania will take days or maybe even weeks to count those mm -hmm. ballots. Texas will know on the third. And if we win Texas, it, it is over. Mathematically, it is over. Psychologically, we can turn the page on Trump and Trumpism and begin the next chapter for this country. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I spent a lot of time talking with Maria Teresa Kumar, who you also obviously know as well um, from Voto Latino. And she studies Texas a lot. Like they, they go deep into these numbers. And our, our, our good uh, friend Mark Murray um, here in the uh, political and polling unit um, at NBC went through and looked at it because the Latino vote is so critical to what happens in Texas because it's, it's, it's a pretty large vote. The Latino vote has gone from 2012 to 2016. It's it's ticking up one percent every two years, approximately. So it's it's growing fast. It was 10 percent in 2012. 2016, it was 11 percent of the total vote. It's expected to be about 12 percent of the vote. And President Obama won at 70, won at 71 to 27 percent that vote. Um, the Latino vote, Clinton won at 66 to 28. In theory, if Biden performs like President Obama, and he was on that ticket, like you say, you know, that could be the turning point. Has the Latino vote, as you've been able to see it, um, gotten to that point where it is as robust as its numbers in Texas? Yes, there are more than five and a half eligible Latino voters in Texas, making it one of the largest blocks of voters in the biggest swing state. Their vote will be decisive in this election. And 
you know, my case to Joe Biden and his team, who are doing an amazing job in Texas, by the way, great state director, Doug Emhoff just visited. They're, they're starting to put resources into Texas. If Joe Biden will come yep. and, and if he will speak to those Latino voters and connect the dots on what Trump has meant for Latinos and what he could do for them, he will win this state. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a future investment. They got to go to Mississippi. They got to go to Texas, go to South Carolina. These are all swing states now. Better O'Rourke, uh, you're great. Thank right. you very much. Appreciate you always. And that is tonight's readout. Thank you. I'll be back here tomorrow at 7 p.m. Eastern. And then at 8 p.m., I'll join Rachel Maddow and Nicole Wallace, my friends, for special coverage of the vice presidential debate between Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris. That is the readout. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? I'll be talking with Zach Carter about his new biography of the economist John Maynard Keynes. This is exactly that kind of uncertainty moment that Keynes was talking about. And he said what you need to do in order to manage that macroeconomy correctly is to take into account the fact that people don't know about the future. And that means the governments will have to play a role providing certainty to people. The government can manage uncertainty in ways that individuals and private businesses cannot. And if the government manages that uncertainty, you are able to have a system in which a somewhat private economy can continue to function. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.